Hello. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Multiracial Mental Health Podcast, where each month we explore the complexities of mental health through the lens of multiracial identity. My name is Shireen Shuai, and I'm a licensed psychotherapist and mixed race woman of Black and Iranian descent. And I'm Madrone Love, a fellow therapist and mixed race woman of African American and Scottish Canadian descent. Together, we're here to bring you informative and authentic conversations with experts in the field of multiracial mental health. Hello again, everyone. Today, we're talking with Lola Oshinkoya, a licensed psychotherapist based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and founder of Neither Both LLC, who will speak with us about her life and psychotherapy practice. Lola is a licensed psychotherapist and owner of Neither Both LLC. She uses writing and multimedia art to explore themes of identity, bringing theoretical concepts about race to mainstream art and conversations. Healing from the damaging impact of racism is a central theme of her work. So let's get into it. Welcome, Lola. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Why don't we start with what made you decide to become a multiracial focused therapist? How does your background inform your approach? Well, um, I think my background led to my choice. And so I was born in Minneapolis. Uh, My dad was deported before I was born. And so I was raised here with my white family. And um, I noticed a lot of things racially that nobody was discussing with me. I had a white mother's perspective on race and um, just was embedded in like liberal white Midwestern culture. And so in my late 20s, I started to go to therapy as a client, and I saw a variety of different therapists, white, Asian, men, women, um, and none of them really focused on race. And I remember with the white man I was seeing who had transracially adopted kids, which I thought was like a secret um, or like a sign that he might be a safe person. Um, When my clinical symptoms got manageable, I was just starting to work up the nerve to see if we could talk about race. And so um, he said to me, well, you're, you know, you're feeling a lot better. Maybe we should work on discharge. And that spooked me with my avoidant uh, attachment. And I ended up leaving therapy rather than having that conversation. Um, So I felt like it was a big loss to not be able to talk about race in terms of my mental health. And So as I began exploring becoming a therapist, I knew that would be an important piece. And before, kind of in the middle of this process, I was finishing my undergrad and I'd come across research on mixed race people. And it opened up a whole lot for me because I wasn't talking about it with a lot of the people in my life. And so my real first experience, knowing that people were thinking really hard about race and mixed race specifically was through stumbling upon research. And so that just, it opened up a lot. And so when it came time to become a therapist, I knew I at least wanted to try to find a way to center race and specifically mixedness in therapy. So I did all of my grad work and research on mixedness and mixed race identity development and um, just decided to take a chance. This was always my goal to have a practice that was focused on mixed race, but I didn't know if people were going to be interested or if it was too niche. But after working in agencies that were culturally responsive for African-Americans and then for immigrants and refugees, 
I finally got the chance to go out on my own and started advertising who I wanted to work with, which was mixed and multiracial. And then I, I was also noticing similarities because of my relationships with transracial and transnational adoptees, wanted to center them, sometimes one and a half or second generation children of immigrants. I thought we're having similar identity experiences. And then uh, queer and trans BIPOC um, I just decided to advertise that way and my practice quickly filled. So I knew I had hit something <laughs> and um, yeah, that's kind of how it got started. I just felt that it was hugely important to understand the impacts of race and of trauma, uh, just the, that connection with mental health. Thanks. Well, it is. And I appreciate uh, how, you know, when, well, when I first met you and, and looked at your website, just how, um, just open and transparent and niche you were um, with your practice. Um, I think a lot of people, I don't know, not struggle, but they they kind of question like how to go about that or um, if they should. Um, but, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, just in the very beginning, um, you know, we, we've talked with, uh, with Jen Noble, who, you know, talks about how, you know, parents and kids talk. And I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, what you were saying about, you know, who your mom was is, um, how, or, or did she talk to you when you were growing up about what had happened with your dad? Yeah. Yeah. That was always an open conversation. And I was in touch with my dad as a kid. I remember phone calls, um, <laughs> in the eighties calling to Nigeria, there was a long delay and, um, he had a high squeaky voice. So it was very hard to communicate with him in a very thick accent. So I just, I didn't have a lot of connection with my direct experience with my dad, but she did talk to me about him. She had traveled to Nigeria. That's actually where I was conceived <laughs> for a honeymoon. Um, and then had come back and she, she could tell me a little bit about Nigerian culture. My mom is a white woman who was attracted to black people and black culture from the time she was a teenager, um, which, you know, there's positives and negatives about that. I experienced most of it as negative and with my own healing work, <laughs> I'm coming to like, let the emotional charge come down on that a little bit. But my mom is someone who felt like she understood black culture because she would code switch and she had black friends. We had a second family. So she had dated someone and their relationship lasted a couple of years, but she kept the family. <laughs> and it was a big black family who had, who had come up here from Louisiana. There was a granddaughter my age um, who I'm still friends with. And so we had this second family. She had people who were accepting her as this white woman who um, I'm doing air quotes now, but had soul. Um, but what I saw was a white woman who I watched code switch. Obviously I didn't have the language as a kid, but I'm like, why do you talk like this with them? And I hear you talk at work like this. And with your other friends, I hear you talk like this. Um, and to me, it just seemed like pretending and I wasn't good at it. So I often had kind of an adversarial relationship with my mom explaining or questioning my blackness. She said things like I'm blacker than you because she could code switch and like uh, perform race in a way that I wasn't willing to do. And so it just, that kind of added to some of my racialized trauma. Um, she would, we went on road trips where she would kind of prep me for if police were going to be involved. Um, or maybe that was a story that she told me once 
that she didn't want police attention because we were different races. Uh, my grandparents, her, her parents had moved to Arkansas when I was a kid. So we would take an annual road trip with my aunt and uncle, her sister and husband who were all white. And sometimes my mom wouldn't go. So she would prep me and just say, you know, people might look at you, you're driving through the South. Um, they might wonder what you're doing. Just people are racist. So just be careful. She wasn't giving me, she just was kind of trying to prep me, but I don't think I had the emotional trust with her or preparation to, to truly understand what to do with that. Um, and I wanted to minimize difference as much as possible as a kid. So yeah, it just was hard to take a white person's perspective on blackness and on race in general. And then the rest of my white family was like, you're good white liberal, don't talk about it, uh, but we're good people and we love you. I had uh, my aunt, I said, was married. She married into a large white Northern hunter family um, where the dad was overtly racist. And as a baby, he didn't want me at their wedding. So, but we spent a lot of time with this family. We spent holidays with them. So I was aware also, even the way it was explained to me is, oh, Lola, they might be racist. They might not like black people, but they love you. And I just was like, hmm, okay. Uh, I mean, it never was comfortable, but I, I wanted their love and it was like a big family, lots of kids, lots of people. It was confusing. And I didn't feel like I had anyone to openly discuss that with. Yeah, I think you're speaking to um, an experience that, that a lot of mixed folks um, can resonate with, right? In, in a way, there's a sense of isolation um, and just seeking out somebody who really... Um, you know, rather rather than kind of imposing uh, an idea or a view onto their kids actually elicits their their experience, you know. Madron, <laughs> um, do you have a question? Yeah, and well, I, I was hearing both the struggle that a lot of us deal with, um, which is racism that happens within our own families. Mm -hmm. um, Anti-black racism for, for those of us who identify as black. Um, and how hard that is when you still feel love or uh, want to connect or there is some connection to have that happening simultaneously is quite confusing. Um, wow. and, and I'm also curious about um, your relationship with your Nigerian family. Has it changed over the years? Have you developed any connection with um, either the family or uh, your Nigerian heritage? Yeah. So. As I said, my dad and I had contact through phone calls. I have a stack of cards, got a, like a file of my dad's letters over the years, um, but we would lose touch. It would be sporadic. So we would send a care package of all these pictures and photos, and then we would lose contact for a while. Um, so it was long periods of no, no contact and then coming back together for a short time and then no contact. But when I was about 20, um, I had met some relatives on his side in the US and visited and made some connections there. And then they were offering to go with me to Nigeria, but it kept falling through. So I realized at a certain point in my late twenties, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have to go and just decide to go on my own. And in order for my life to move forward, I need to go. So I planned a trip on my own to Nigeria when I was 29 and I met my dad and his side of the family. And on his side, uh, he had remarried and he had four kids. So I have three brothers there and a sister. 
Um, so that was 2006. And that was my first time going there. And there was a lot, I'd never been outside of the US. So there was a lot of um, culture shock, as well as just the overwhelm of meeting family. And then my extended family there is huge. And so I, I went, I met a lot of people. Um, I was very overwhelmed. And but I, when I met my dad, I just, I loved him. And um, we have a very similar temperament. He and I are very calm. My mom is wound up. And so it was interesting to like, and then from the nose up, we look exactly the same, except he's darker. <laughs> um, and so it was just interesting to sit with him and to talk to him and um, got to read. He kept every letter my mom had sent him. And so I got to read through those and you know, do some work on understanding who she used to be, who he was, what their relationship was like. And it was really a transformative experience for me in terms of mental health and this idea that I think in order to truly transform, sometimes we have to be willing to be completely wrong. Side note. <laughs> but um, yeah, I didn't connect with my brothers and sister very well on that trip. There was one brother that I had more of a connection with. Um but there had been some things that had happened before then that impacted trust with a, with one of my siblings. So that trip was not the greatest. And then eventually my dad in 2012 finally got a visa. He'd been working on it pretty much since he'd left, but it's really, really hard to get back, get out of Nigeria through uh, their immigration. Um, you have to prove that you are coming back, that you're not just trying to escape Nigeria. And that's difficult, even though he's married, has a family, has property, all of the stuff. So anyway, in 2012, he came, um, but it was really bad timing. At the time, my, both my grandma and my aunt were dying. And so it was kind of a fraught trip because my mind was somewhere else with the people who had actually raised me and he had come in. I forgot one piece. I have a brother my dad had another child right before me that we didn't know about really till I was 20. And so when he was here in 2012, the time was split with my brother. Um, yeah, but in 2015, my dad um, had been diagnosed with cancer and there was nothing more that could be done. My brother had not met him yet. No, my brother had met him, but wanted to go to Nigeria. So we went again, 2015 was my second trip and um, kind of saying goodbyes, connecting with family, and all of that. And I thought that would be my last trip. And then we came home and I think about 11 days later, my dad passed away. Um, and so I was like, well, I can't go again. That's like two international trips in a month. I can't, uh, I can't afford it. And I can't take the time off work and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, we made it happen and went back for the funeral. Um, it was really beautiful to be able to see the funeral process in Yoruba culture. Um, which is a whole story within itself. I've been trying to write about that for years, um, maybe someday. <laughs> but I went back there and then I made better connections with most of my siblings during those two trips. And so we're in touch, but we lose touch when you don't grow up with people. Like it's hard to stay connected. And that's something that I find with a lot of people who reunite with family as adults. Um, there's different hurts that have been hard to heal around my dad. And our relationship. Um, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't describe a super close relationship with my siblings, but I've got, you know, a sibling I haven't been in touch with for a while. As a matter of fact, this week reached out to me and we're supposed to talk this weekend. So, you know, it's it's not a typical family relationship, but we try. We try and stay in touch and 
I have jealousy for them because they grew up with him and they have jealousy for me because they have thought I was a rich American growing up. Once they heard about me, they actually didn't know about me for a long time. With your traveling to Nigeria, with you, with your connecting with your siblings and um, spending more time with your father, how did this impact your relationship with Nigerian culture? Uh, did it fortify it? Did it complicate it? Where are you currently um, with this aspect of your heritage? <laughs> um, currently, I acknowledge, I usually say my dad was from Nigeria. I don't feel like I have a strong, I don't, mm, I don't feel like I can claim a strong connection as a Nigerian person. That's the truth of how I feel right now. I've wanted to, and when I go there, there is a certain feeling of home. Um, when I leave the airport and I'm looking at the land and the times that we've gone back to the village where my dad was born, uh, because the family lives in Lagos now and has for their whole lives, but the village is an important part of our heritage. I do feel that. So internally, I know that being Nigerian is part of my heritage. Culturally, I'm American and I was raised by white people. <laughs> and I, I do believe in our ability to grow and develop, but that's that's kind of where I came from. Um, when I go to Nigeria, that's interesting. In 2006, I just assumed like, and I was told just, you know, be careful. I'm very protected when I go and it's very insular. My family is like, you don't, we'll pick you up. When you're riding in the car, you ride in the back seat. My when I'm alone with one of my brothers, he's like, sometimes you'll have to duck in the car because of the police system. There's a lot of bribery and, you know, stopping people for no real reason. But if they see me and my skin color, they're gonna assume there's a rich person there. Um <laughs> I suppose I could give like a few tidbits. So in 2006, I would just assumed like, oh, light skin, they think I'm rich. I, I do wanna say. When I was there the first time, I journaled all the time, and I still have those journals, and I blogged about that at a point in my life. But I remember reflecting on it and saying, I came here to have this identity experience, but I'm finding I'm not Nigerian. I don't feel completely Black, and I'm not white. And that's where neither both came from, is that journal entry. <laughs> um, so that was that. And then in 2015 and 2016, I realized I'm perceived as white in Nigeria. And that was, oh, pardon my language, but a mindfuck in itself, because the one thing I have never perceived myself as white. Um, and so to know that Nigerians who are also saying, like my family and family friends are like, you're Nigerian. Do you see that you're Nigerian now? This is your home. These are your people. You're Nigerian, your family. But somebody will walk past the house and look inside and say, who's that white woman in the parlor? And I was like, oh, um, it's just, that's a lot. So there's just this piece of like, from Nigerians, you belong, but you, you don't belong. My brother, frankly, told me your skin tone doesn't exist here. Um, there's people who are light skinned in Nigeria, but they, they're not this tone. So you stand out. And I understand what he's saying now. They have like a purplish undertone. Um, Lola, for our listeners, can you describe um, yourself? So for those who, who do not know what you look like. Ah, okay. Hmm. I uh, I don't generally consider myself super light-skinned. I feel like I have a medium tone. Um, and then, you know, in the summer, I'm darker. In the winter, 
I'm probably at my lightest, but I, I would never pass for white in terms of my skin tone. And then my hair is curly, kinky in places. I have a lot of different textures, but I have uh, visible spirals in my hair. I have a wide nose. Um, my facial structure is a actually a really good combination of both my parents. So in some ways, I feel like I look very Nigerian, but just totally different skin tone that throws people off. And I have had strangers who are in Nigeria approach me and ask me if I am. Um, but then I've got some Scandinavian parts of like the shape of my face as well. Um, yeah. So I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Thank you. I, I could definitely uh, imagine it being a mind fuck if you're encountering people who are saying essentially you're white or you look white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was offended. And I was like, what do you mean? Is white American to you? Or is white, is it my skin? Because it's not my hair. And I, I I don't think I, I might have had straight hair in 2006, but my hair has been natural ever since. So it's like, I don't, what does white mean to you? And I still don't know. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Well, yeah, and that... I mean, part of what we're doing in in this podcast is just looking at, you know, I mean, it's obviously mainly an American vantage point, but, um, you know, uh, uh, several of the folks that we've interviewed so far do have, um, you know, experience with parents or family in, um, you know, just around the world and the different constructs of race um, and how they really can challenge or compliment or how they interact with our own views kind of, you know, as American, mainly folks. Um, so, you know, I get, I get curious for you, Lola, like in your practice for multiracial clients. Yeah. So it's not exclusively mixed. I would say the last time I checked, it was 50% mixed. Um, so in my practice, I do center mixed and multiracial, transracial and transnational adoptees, and then queer and trans folks of color. And there's monoracial people that come to see me. Um, for a long time, I only had two white clients on my caseload. Now there's a couple more, um, which is okay. <laughs> it has to, I mean, there's certain white people that it wouldn't work with, but they're willing to, well, some people it works. <laughs> um, and I always ask why white people were drawn to me if they're coming through my website. Because it's, but I have some specialties uh, that local people have been looking for. Anyway, um, what do they say when you ask them why they they're mostly them? looking like one person was looking for a clinical specialty that I have called air network training, which is kind of parts work, the neuropsychology of, I shouldn't say that because I'm definitely not a neuropsychologist, but like how the brain and body are impacted by trauma and um, self compassion just kind of this conglomeration of stuff. So that specific model. Another one, I, I'm listed on some trauma websites because complex trauma and dissociation is one of my specialties. Um, and so one young white person was like, I just, I looked at your website and I started crying because of the way that you center people and say that you're looking at them through their family, social, cultural, racial lenses. And I want to be seen and held that way. This is a person who's had a lot of like rigid community involvement um, where they haven't been seen as themselves and they've been told to be someone else. So I think people who are like, I, I need to be seen and held sometimes are resonating. <laughs> um, but so the way that I make a comfortable, safe space for 
mixed and multiracial people. I think it starts with my intake process. Well, it starts with um, kind of an in, um, a screening call that I do. And so I do a Zoom call uh, before I'll put anyone on my waiting list or receive anyone. And just, I talk about my, I always do my own introduction. I say, I'm Lola. I use she, her pronouns. I identify as a cishet woman. I identify as mixed and black. I'm from South Minneapolis, born and raised. <laughs> just so people kind of like, I name the things. And so people know who they're in the room with. I got that training um, through a local organization. And then I ask, tell me a little bit about yourself and what brings you to therapy and why you want to have therapy with me. And then in my intake process, I created a cultural identities questionnaire, which I ask people to list their important identities. And I give some examples of like the categories they might list. And I ask, you know, how important is it for you to talk about race and therapy? Have you had therapists that talked about race and therapy before? Is it important for you to talk about gender and sexuality? Um, are you choosing to work with me because of, and then I have a checklist of the reasons that people might want to, and they can check as many as they want. So kind of thinking about it through there, along with the general in, intake paperwork that's required for insurances. Um, and then, yeah, so it starts there. Um, I'm kind of getting back into my office now. I've been on Zoom since the pandemic, but in my office, I have pictures on my wall and I'm in the process of changing those too, but I like to have pictures on my wall that reflect the identities of the people that I serve, as well as sometimes a client will talk about someone who's meaningful to them in terms of a role model or identity or just someone they admire. And then I'll put that picture up too. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that started when I was working at African-American Family Services. I just liked the idea and I just pulled them out of magazines, but I framed pictures of black people and black people smiling and happy and or different expressions and doing different things because um, I just feel like that kind of reflection is super important. And I'm in process of I'm going to I'm, I'm buying up. <laughs> I worked on this project called Within Between and Beyond. It was an, a multimedia exhibition that centered mixed race multiracial and transracial and transnational adoptees. Um, Leslie Barlow created paintings for that. And then I conducted video interviews, but Leslie sells the prints. So I'm in process of buying the whole collection and I'm going to, they're like 16 by 20 prints. And I want to have those all around the room because they're beautiful portraits of mixed individuals, families, adoptees, and the people in the paintings helped create the paintings like there's so much of who they are in them and the different settings that were chosen so they're very beautiful and i thought that would be nice as well because when you put celebrities on the wall people get canceled and <laughs> things happen so um so yeah i like to create an environment that feels uh responsive and welcoming and then yeah when people start i ask about race. I ask about people's families when I'm curious about the dynamics. I, I ask direct questions, but in an open, and if they don't want to talk about it, they don't have to talk about it. I don't press, but I allow space for people to bring all of their identity into the room. I think that's about it. <laughs> I love hearing about your focus on representation in the space. I'm remembering one of my previous therapists and in the waiting room, it was stacks of magazines and it was full of white people. Um, and I, I, I just kept wondering, like, is this the right place for me? Um, if yeah. I'm the only brown person here, does this make sense? So I can only imagine going to a space where not only are there 
uh, faces of color, but mixed people. That just sounds so welcoming and affirming. So I love that. Um, So I'm curious, as you shared about how you essentially initiate this this discussion about identity starting with the intake paperwork and um, again bringing it in through these visual representations of folks of color just letting folks know that this is a safe place to talk about their identities um what about power and privilege is this a conversation discussion that you have with clients either the differential of power and privilege between you and them or issues of power and privilege they're having in their lives? Is that something you find yourself, um, a discussion you find yourself initiating? Um, hmm. clients? I could do better. <laughs> um, especially like noting the power and privilege. I, I've just given a couple ther- uh, trainings to the therapists and um, behavioral health providers in a number of roles where I've asked them to reflect on identity and name uh, the power dynamics with clients. Um, and sometimes I, I don't do, I forget to do that because I feel like, oh, I'm a helper and I'm here and I'm collaborating with you, but there are power dynamics. And so it's funny, I've named that in a supervision relationship when I've, when we've kind of had outside environments where we have connected. Um, but I do think it's important. And I will talk about power and privilege in terms of individual clients and their identity development. And so, you know, something very common with mixed people, especially mixed people who have a white parent is kind of feeling um, ashamed or like one of the reasons they can't show up in space is because of the privilege and, um, like racial privilege they would have because of how they look or because of their proximity to whiteness, all of that. So I do bring that into sessions and I try to bring it in. I don't, um, I guess I don't often initiate that as much as I could, but I'm open to that conversation when it comes up. And I do name, especially when we're talking about like interpersonal conflict or workplace dynamics, things like that. And then race, I do talk about power and privilege as well as oppression. And something that I think about a lot for mixed people is like the holding of both. There's parts of us that are privileged and have power in different contexts of identity, as well as experiencing oppression. And I think it's important to like note that within all of who we are, there's going to be both. Yeah. And I I just, um, what comes to my mind is this dance that we're doing with clients, the dance of um, following their lead, moving at their pace, and following their breadcrumbs. And and the other part of that dialectic is illuminating aspects of their experience that they may not see yet. Mm-hmm. And so this power and privilege differential may be being that, but, but, but understandably being cautious about introducing that before they're ready or um, before they're interested in engaging in that conversation. Absolutely. Well, in, in your answer here, you've kind of touched upon it a little bit, but um, you know, what are, what are some common concerns uh, that you encounter with multiracial clients? Um, yeah, I do. Belonging is obviously a primary issue. Um, not knowing where they belong, wanting to belong in certain spaces and feeling like they don't, wanting to take up space and feeling like they can't. Um, yeah, so kind of pervasive issues of belonging that sometimes show up directly and they name it, and sometimes it's more 
like they haven't found the words for that yet. Um, you know, who to choose in partnerships, having most of your relationships be uh, cross-cultural, interracial, um, yeah, the things that come up with a partner of different race than you, challenges with parents, parents who haven't understood or prepared them for mixedness, um, and, you know, being angry about that, but also knowing generationally things were different. Um, I'm curious to hear more about, because we we, we haven't uh, touched on this yet in the podcast, is the relationships and dating and, and them being cross-cultural almost all the time, unless one finds another mixed person of their same mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what those conversations have been like uh, with the clients. <laughs> uh, well, it's always interesting. Um, I am in Minnesota, so it's very white here. Um, and I'm in a niche of communities of color. Um, I would say it was especially challenging after the murder of George Floyd to talk with clients who were partnered with white people. That got very tenuous for a while. And ooh, seeing the limitations, you know, you're in a loving partnership, sometimes a marriage, and you realize there's a whole part of yourself that may not have been talked about or like talked about with nuance or worked or like um, hadn't been presented with such an extreme challenge before in terms of acknowledging white supremacy, uh, activism, visibility, standing up for what you believe in, um, just learning things about their partners that they hadn't seen before or didn't want to see with white partners. Um, so that was a challenging time. A lot of people were hungry to come to therapy and talk through some of this stuff. And it was just interesting for me to watch as a single person, unpartnered at, at the moment, um, seeing people be able to like build lives and share lives, but not have their race as a as something you talk about regularly, like as something you can put away. Um, yeah, and and a significant number of my clients are partnered with white people. So that's, it was very challenging. Um, I'm trying to think if there were other, um, I mean, in general, I feel like in mixed community, like, well, for mixed individuals, it can be seen as a political choice who you choose to date. It says something about you. Um, and then mixed people, like I have, mixed clients who have a monoracial, for instance, a monoracial black partner, but a white family kind of navigating the tensions there can be challenging. Um, And when you've known your family forever and know kind of their limits, um, explaining and navigating the paradigm between I've got white parents or a white parent or whoever that's not going to necessarily make a lot of change, but they're still my parent, and I'm choosing to have them in my life. And I've got a partner, a black partner or another partner of color who maybe isn't navigating those same dynamics. It can be really tricky um, because it kind of says, what will you put up with? Uh, And that can be kind of shamey. It's very complex. I personally believe, yeah, most mixed and multiracial individuals nearly all of your relationships are going to be interracial or cross-cultural. Like you said, unless you find someone with the same mix, and even then, there's no guarantee that you've got similar cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Just like with the siblings who can have totally different racial experiences growing up in the same family. 
mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. every relationship for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Uh, so one one more question down that path. Um, most of us, uh, mixed folks, as you've mentioned, struggle with feelings of belonging and connection. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you see any trends related to attachment style? I don't know if you use that concept, um, trends around maybe anxious or avoidant or um, any kind of impact on how they're relating um, in their partnerships, maybe due to this, this background of struggling to feel connected. I hadn't thought about trends or if mixed people, and forgive me, I say mixed, that's the term that I'm used to and that works for me, but I use it interchangeably with multiracial. Um, I hadn't thought of like seeing most people as avoidant or most mixed people as um, anxious, but I definitely see it. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think... Yeah. I mean, I'll say for myself, I'm avoidantly attached and I've been working towards secure attachment for a while. Um, But yeah, as soon as I feel that I don't belong, I'm going to withdraw and I'm going to run. It's taken some time to be able to learn to sit with the discomfort and not take personally what might not even be a thing, might might not have been an intention or might not even be seen from the same perspective by the other person, but just having all of those triggers around rejection from childhood and different people respond differently to perceived rejection. Some people are avoidant and some people are anxious and try to <laughs> uh, cling and convince. And yeah, that I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'd say more than looking, more than searching for a trend to name around that, I'm just, I'm very interested in how racialized experiences impact attachment. I mean, obviously there's the attachment with the parent and there's, there could be stuff around that. I hadn't thought about whether there's research or anything there, but racialized rejection, I've been thinking about that for a long time, but then to bring attachment style into it is super fascinating. Fascinating. I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's any research or people looking more closely at that. Well, maybe to our our student listeners, we got some (laughs) research we need done on this topic. (laughs) Yeah, well, we we even, you know, one of of our questions is, you know, how do you balance the unique needs and experiences of multiracial clients with general principles of psychotherapy, right? And so attachment theory, like here's one, and then, you know, the latest research, right? Um, And... uh, you know, the, the research for us is, you know, it's an evolving thing. Um, and I was noticing on your blog, um, cause I was checking that out, that just the ways that you, um, fold different, um, frameworks of identity development into, um, you say maybe not necessarily your work with clients, but, um, like in presentations and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you talk a little bit about that? Um, just, you know, your interest in, you know, different theories of identity development. Yeah. So that's what I was studying in 2012, well, 2010 to 2012, when I was in my grad program, because, well, you know, majoring in yourself, which I think we all do to a certain extent, I was curious, like, you know, if you look at Erickson or all of these models of like human development, we're supposed to develop our sense of identity as kids and like group identity, maybe junior high and high school and 
in terms of group identity, like racial identity and in-group and out-group and gatekeeping, all of that stuff happens. And so what happens when you're an adult and you realize like, I didn't really develop this side or I didn't have an opportunity or, and most of the time it's not that explicit even, it's just like, I'm ashamed because I don't fit. And if you, I mean, belonging, so belonging was part of my thesis too. Um, how do you, how do you develop belonging? How do you develop identity as an adult who didn't navigate it kind of with the rest of your peers who might've successfully navigated, like I belong to this racial group and I belong to this social group and all of that. And your group identities are kind of settled. You've figured out how to do it. I feel like I missed the lesson while I was feeling excluded from black kids and tokenized by white kids and seem to be very cool and talented and smart. Um, and so I came across identity development models and I, I, I had a pretty good working knowledge of what was out there in 2012. And I thought it was interesting because there's stage models of identity development that say your life happens in different stages and you go from basically naive to becoming enculturated in white supremacy and kind of buying into whiteness as normative. And I start with blackness because those were the first models that came in. But so for instance, blackness as like, you see it as lower because we're, we're all enculturated into white supremacy. It's a thing. Um, and then coming across like an activating experience where suddenly you're forced to reconcile like, oh, there is a racial structure in our society and I am this race. I am operating under white supremacy and then navigating stages of like anger and withdrawal and defensiveness through kind of coming to terms with your own racial identity crises. And then coming to this magical end place of like, I feel comfortable with me. I'm comfortable with other communities of color. I'm comfortable with white people. And so that kind of model was adopted adapted for different races, white, Asian. Um, and then there were some multiracial uh, stage of development models that talked about, you know, the grand goal is to say, I'm multiracial and I feel great about it once you reach the end of the stages. And I think those are super important and there's a place for those. And then Later on, there came to be more context models of racial identity development um, that said, I'm less interested in the stages of where people can get to. I'm more interested in how does multiracial identity develop within a bunch of different contexts, like your actual racial ancestry, what kind of social experiences you had as a kid, who was involved in the community? Did you have enculturation by both parents, by one parent? And what does that say about how you identify? What about socioeconomic status? What about spirituality? What about gender and sexuality? So kind of offering more of an intersectional lens on how does the identity of multiracial people come to be, not where are you on a stage in different stages of development? Um, so I thought that was really important and it felt really spacious for me to begin looking at contexts in which my identity developed and it offered an explanation. I didn't, <laughs> I just said this to a client the other day who's really struggling. I was like, when do you stop blaming yourself for being raised in a white family? Like, when do you stop taking, when, when do you like release the shame of that? 
When do you stop taking responsibility or acting like it's your fault that you were raised in this environment? That happened. That was not your choice. This person is mixed and an adoptee. And so it's extra challenging, but like you didn't choose any of that. And you didn't get to choose where you were raised and who was around and what schools you went to. If we can get to an acceptance of this is how the identity developed, then I think kind of then this is where I think it's interesting that the activating experience comes in, because if you look at where was my identity at when I was six, and then you repeated looking at those stages, where's my identity at at 26? It's probably different. And why? And in each context, what has changed? Was there an activating experience? Did like what caused you to develop your identity? What experiences, what people, what relationships? And given that, how can you create experiences for yourself on purpose to develop your identity, to push it along. So that's what I'm interested in. (laughs) And um, that's why that research was so important to me. And I think about, it's weird because as Shireen said, I, I think about it with presentations and I've started giving presentations again in the last month. I've done a couple. So I talk about this in presentations and people are like, whoa, okay. Like it's resonating. And I don't necessarily do this directly with clients, but I do think it's an intervention. You could share models with clients and see how they react. And it's really good food for thought. It's really good on intersectionality. It's really good on decreasing shame that comes with like, here's things I couldn't control when I, when I was a kid, but how could I do a little more exploration or give myself different experiences or just learn? Like I found research in college Now people can go on TikTok and like hear people share their personal experiences and how they've navigated things. I don't know. It's kind of an exciting time, but like um, we get to continue developing identity. It doesn't have to be stopped. And I I know that I've felt shame and um, I just didn't feel like I didn't know what to do. It felt kind of hopeless. I felt like, am I always going to be this visibly black person who's not black enough and who's not doing it right and who doesn't belong. Does it always have to be that way or is there something I can do? And so that's, that's what I think is the usefulness in understanding and exploring identity development. And then I think about, and the reason I want to bring it to blogs and bring it to presentations is I resent that there's so much of this information and research that's hidden behind um, academic paywalls and sites um, that is not accessible to the public. And I want us to be having more public conversations about, yeah, like, how how do you identify? Why? What did it have to do with these ways you were raised? How did you change it? How can we work together? How can we form community and begin talking about this and moving ourselves forward with the information that everybody should have? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so Lola, as I'm, as I'm hearing you share, I'm thinking about, how all of us mixed folks um, due to our family histories and how we were the context with which we were raised have been forced to develop this complexity of of mind of having to hold neither and both and um, and hold intersectional identities and hold that we we love our white families and they're all also racist and and so what i'm hearing is that you've taken this ability to hold complexity and applied it to this identity um this understanding of identity that is this development of identity and i think it's uh, 
Fantastic. Very helpful. And moves us beyond a linear model of things are hard and then they're better, um, but rather it's a lot more complex than that. So I'm curious, I know that you have been working on a, a workbook for multiracial people, for mixed folks. Are these ide ideas present in this workbook? Um, what, what? Tell us about it. Oh, absolutely. And they are present there. So I'm going to include things about identity development models, because I think it's important that we have tools to explore identity. I think I totally agree with you on we are forced to hold a lot of complexity from a very young age. That's something I talk about a little bit in the book. And like, let's use our superpower to like continue thinking about this and continue developing. So I'm creating a workbook. Uh, the title is called Multiple Overlapping Truths, uh, a workbook for mixed people. I think that's, wow. <laughs> I took a break. <laughs> so I've got to go back and make sure that's the right words, but multiple overlapping truths will be the title. And um, yeah, just creating space for people who have pain, shame, tension, questions around identity to be able to grab onto some skills to begin resolving some of that tension and resolving some of those difficult feelings. Um, so I do look at identity development models. Um, I create space and ask questions about how can you explore your identity? How can you move it forward? Um, I look at readiness for change. So I borrow from um, addiction models uh, and I'm kind of taking that out of context <laughs> of the context of addiction, but just readiness for change. And because in order to make change, we have to believe that it's possible. And so you can't jump from, I don't believe that I can change to I'm ready and I'm doing it. There are phases along the way and how can we encourage and support ourselves along the way? Um, what else is it? I mean, it's, it's basically, yeah, encouragement, examples, modeling of how to explore your identity and how to move it forward, um, including like how to how to engage in resources, how to like I, I know from my therapy practice that many people are not having these conversations about race and complexity in their real lives. And for some people that I see in therapy, I'm the first pers mixed person they've ever had a conversation with. Um, through our groups together, we participate in um, mixed clinicians group. We often have clinicians that are like, holy moly, I have never had a space like this where we could talk openly. Um, so a lot of people, when they're thinking about healing racial identity, are like, I need to be more of this, or I, I need this monoracial community to accept me. This is maybe something I didn't get. But I think it's, and I think that's an important piece, but I think it's hugely important to be able to find community with other mixed people. And yet some people are super isolated. So many people don't have access to a mixed therapist and they don't have access to mixed community. And it's so important to have that. Like you want to heal pieces, but like I found in Nigeria, I didn't go to Nigeria and like feel Nigerian. I don't know if I believe that you can enculturate. You, uh, I, it's sticky, I'm not sure. But I don't think that you can replace having been enculturated as a child. I don't think you're suddenly going to feel all the way 100% comfortable. Maybe people can, 
But I think more important is to find the experience of other people with similar identity experiences as you have who have had to navigate similar things. So mixed people, multiracial people coming together, transracial and transnational adoptees coming together to be able to talk and learn from each other and develop language. Part of my book is like, what's the language that feels good for you, knowing that language changes and people? It's so important to have community of with people with similar experiences to you to be able to build language. So yeah, language changes over time. Things that were once totally acceptable become unacceptable. And you learn that the word had roots in something really bad. And so you can't use that word anymore, but language changes over time. And some people just don't have the language to talk about these experiences. So as we share with each other, there's these aha moments of like, Oh, yeah, I have that feeling. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't have a a descriptor for it. And talking to other people, now I have language to talk about my experience. I don't feel so isolated. I can form a sense of belonging with people who have experienced life in a similar way to me. I just, that is super important. So if you can have that, that's the best thing. And I'm so lucky um, to have had that with the Mixed Clinicians Group, with Midwest Mixed locally. Um, attending conferences, attending um, critical mixed race studies back in 2018, and finding the people who created this group. It is fantastic to have it in person. And if you can't, then can you at least hear from someone who has that experience? So I just want the book to be a beginning. Like, here's how you, here's some tools to explore your identity. Here's some language you might begin to use, but find language that works for you and feels affirming and empowering. Um, I talk about affirmations and encouraging yourself. We've, I'm just going to say it. We're a very discouraged people sometimes uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, we're very like, ooh, shiny, pretty, this and that. But um, we deserve the encouragement for who we are and the choices that we make and our identities. We need a lot of encouragement and we need to learn how to encourage ourselves and each other. Yeah. So it's, I hope it's a beginning point um, for people who are isolated. Sorry. I think that's the point I've been trying to get to forever. If you don't have access to a mixed community or a mixed therapist or somebody who can hold these identity questions and experiences, I at least want you to have some tools and some modeling of like, this is what it can look like. And then hopefully in the future, I definitely want to do it locally, and I'm hoping nationally, at least too, to hold some groups where people can come together who might be isolated and just begin to do this work. Because I know I'm a therapist and I work with individuals. I don't work with couples. I don't work with children. But I truly believe that identity work is best done in group settings. And so because I don't want you to just learn from me. I want you to learn from six other people who have similar and different experiences and who can help you too. And we all have so much wisdom around this, even if we don't have language to express it. I think it's important that we come together and have conversations and, and create the knowledge without the help of academia. Yeah. I, I, I love this so much and just am just so blown away by, um, by just what this offering is going to provide for folks um and just so excited that you're you're doing it um really cannot wait um and i i I agree with with what you say about um finding group and community um 
because you know what came to my mind as you were speaking was uh our i don't know if you would agree with this i think that as mixed people our identities are really um kind of ever shifting in relationship to our surroundings right and and people that we are raised by people that we're in community with and so um the ways that we conceive of our identities um aren't necessarily fixed right that mm-hmm. that there's there's a there's there is kind of i don't know almost like this inherent relationality oh yeah um and so you know that that's just really interesting to me it's given me a lot to think about um so thank you mm-hmm. um, and to just like um add an exclamation point on that a lot of like kind of the framing around mixed race identity development is our identities change depending on the context. We can have a different internal identity than the way that we might externally identify in any number of environments. And our identity is going to change over time or can. And uh, the other side of that is it doesn't have to, (laughs) but we have space. I think it's a reclaiming of space and a reclaiming of autonomy and being able to decide for ourselves another one of those like mixed experiences is other people have told me about my identity. And a lot of times what they tell me is not what I feel on the inside. So being like judged by other people and put into categories by other people in a kind of oddly forceful way. Mm -hmm. So being able to take our power back, I think is important. And and I wanted to jump in and just kind of focus on um, this part of we're discouraged people. Yes, we are Um, (laughs) combined with and we're in the the shiny, pretty new novel, the future of America or something. And so it makes for this confusing um, position to be Um, you you want to speak up and express frustration, resentments, bitterness around the the level of discouragement and silencing and um, invisibilizing of our identity. But it's hard when at the same time every black face on tv is is a multiracial uh, black face mm-hmm. uh, so it's like we should be silent because of the privileges that we are awarded so it's, it's quite confusing yeah mm-hmm. uh, yeah but I, I i'm very much looking forward to this workbook it's it's needed it's needed yeah. wonderful well thank you so much lola this has just been wonderful and um you know i think they're we didn't get into it. I want to talk to you later on because there's like there's commonalities that we share, uh, and you know, with our dads and things like that. Um, and yeah, this has just been uh, a treat. So um, thank you. And you talked about your workbook. Can you tell us um, where else people can find you and you know what all is coming up for you? Yeah. So my website is neitherbolt.com, and I'm on Instagram as at neither both all one word um i haven't updated that recently but i intend to get back into it (laughs) um yeah and my therapy practice uh i am limited to practicing with people in minnesota but i um, am located my office is in a small suburb golden valley of minneapolis um most of my sessions are via zoom I do take insurances, so you can always go to my website if you're interested in therapy and you're living in Minnesota. And then, yeah, once the book is finished and I can begin offering some kind of group offerings, um, I'll likely 
I'll definitely have that on my website and post on Instagram and things like that. Fantastic. And we'll add those links in too. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lila, so much for being here. It's such an honor. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. These were great questions and a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Multiracial Mental Health, a monthly podcast where mixed therapists center and explore the lived experience of multiracial people, couples, and families. Multiracial Mental Health, the podcast, is an ACAST production and a project of the Multiracial Mental Health Clinician Directory at www.multiracialmentalhealth.com. Mental health is a journey, and we're here to support. If you've enjoyed the episode, be sure to like us, share the show, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual places where content can be found. 